And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as, you, as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of God. Well, if you weren't ready to listen to a sermon, we wanted to put on hip-hop. We wanted to put on some gospel during the, you know, the, the shaking of hands to get you ready. So if you weren't ready... <laughs> now you are ready. Uh, welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of this church. Uh, we are a new church plant. Uh, we will say that for at least a year, every time something happens. Uh, but we're excited to be in this space and to be, a, to be a community that is learning to be a community, learning to be friends, and learning what it might mean and look like for us to love our city, love one another, and, and uh, begin to be a church. So thank you for being with us, especially if it is your first Sunday here at Trinity. It is everybody's, um, you know, we have only been here, for, I think this is our seventh week, so everybody is new to Trinity. And it's a great time to invite friends into a new church and invite friends into a new community because you can say we're just getting started. Literally everyone is strangers, come and be a part of it. And so if Trinity is home to you, I make that a part of what you're thinking about and praying towards during the week. What would it look like for me to engage people and bring them into this community as we build it from the ground up. Uh, thank you for being here. We're in a series that we've entitled Conversations with Jesus, and what we've been doing is looking at a unique conversation that Jesus has. Uh, sometimes it's with an individual, sometimes it's with something. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a unique conversation that he had with the wind and the waves, all of it giving us clues as to who Jesus is, as to why he's come. But also, I hope that what you're seeing is that those clues are not only filling in our understanding of who Jesus is, but those clues are also filling in who we are. As you see him more clearly, you start to understand who we are in relationship to him. And so we've tried to design this as a unique place to understand the heartbeat of Christianity, which revolves around Jesus. And so as we launch this church as a church which is being built upon the gospel, we want to take you to Jesus. And so over these next three months, these past three months, we're about halfway through this series, and we're going to be looking at these conversations. And today we're going to be wrestling with a conversation that essentially asks, how can we live the Christian life in the modern world? How can we live the Christian life in the modern world? And what could it look like to follow Jesus right here and right now in 21st century Southern California? Throughout church history, Every time the church has tried to understand or to define that question according to their own priorities, the church has gotten radically lost. Every time the church has tried to be relevant and redefine what it means to be a Christian, what, redefine what it means to follow Jesus, the church has totally lost its credibility. They have lost their cultural edge. The church has lost, and I think the city has lost, simply meaning that broader society has lost when the church has tried to be relevant. 
when they tried to redefine following Jesus in the modern moment according to their own priority. But every time historically, the church has followed Jesus in his call towards discipleship. The church has always set the world ablaze. And so we want to look at this unique conversation. If you happened upon our website, I don't think we have it printed in our bulletin, but if you were to visit Trinity's website, our mission statement says, Trinity San Diego exists to amplify and advance a gospel movement by helping people mature as followers of Jesus. That's why we're starting this church. And we hope that we can play a small part in our city, but potentially a large part in your life, helping you understand what it could mean for you to be a follower of Jesus in the modern world. And so I'm going to take you into this conversation, two different chunks separated by a few verses, but we're going to look at verses 23 through 25 first, and then 57 through 62 second. I've broken it down into three movements. The first is, if you're a note taker, number one, the nature of following. Secondly, the priority of the kingdom. And then thirdly, the agenda of the king. So the nature of following, the priority of the kingdom, and the agenda of the king. So under the first one, let's look at verse 23, the nature of following. There in verse 23, Jesus says, or it's written, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? One of the most famous books that's ever been written on the topic of discipleship and following Jesus is entitled The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what Bonhoeffer essentially says in that book is that an active following Jesus is the definition of Christianity. An active rather than a passive following of Jesus is the definition, it is the essence, it's the nature of Christianity. And he says that because he knows, and maybe you know, that it's all too easy to assume that Christianity is for everyone while discipleship is only for a few. And while church attendance maybe is for everyone or grace is for everyone, but this passionate following of Jesus is for the pious, it's for the clergy, it's people who are professionals, it's the people who are super spiritual, it's for the godly, whoever the godly are. Christianity is for me, but a passionate, daily, active following of Jesus is only for a few. It's interesting to think about what an integrated faith and worldview would look like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who takes his cues from Jesus, he understands that there has to be an integrated understanding of faith, that it can't be relegated to Sunday morning, that your experience of Jesus has to shape the boardroom and the bedroom as much as it shapes you showing up at church on a Sunday. And so that's what we want to try to get to the bottom of. We want to understand how Jesus understands following. So notice how Jesus begins. He says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When he makes his pitch, which we're going to talk a lot about, when he makes his pitch of discipleship, there is no mention of super spirituality. There's no mention of clergy. There's no mention of the godly. There's no mention of a saint. He just says, if anyone would come after me. You see, what he's doing is he's unpacking the nature of Christianity when he unpacks the nature of this unique invitation to come and follow anyone who wants to follow. 
So you can think about it like this. Discipleship is for everyone. But before you bristle, I want you to also consider that everyone is a disciple. Everyone is a disciple. Every last one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike. What do I mean? How can I say that everyone is a disciple? Maybe you're here today saying, I'm not a disciple. The fundamental aspect of discipleship means I follow. I follow. That I sit at something or someone's feet. We are all giving allegiance away, aren't we? We're following teams. We're following places. We're we're in relationships with one another. We have followers, and we are followers on social media. Isn't it interesting that we've used that word? I'm a follower because the heartbeat of discipleship means I follow. So it really doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Fundamentally, to be human means I'm going to follow something or someone. I am going to give allegiance away. I'm going to give my heart away. This is not just a Christian concept is really what I'm trying to show you, that following is part of what it means to be human. The only thing that we have to determine then is who's going to be the recipient of my allegiance? Who's going to be the recipient of my following? Which in some ways gets us back to the original question that we're asking, which is what is the essence of the Christian life in the modern world? And Jesus gives us that answer in verse 23. Look there with me. In verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And some of you may be thinking when you hear Jesus say that, that this is, again, another reason why you're not a Christian. Jesus' call to follow him is completely unrealistic. It's primitive, it's narrow, it's naively idealistic, but what if it wasn't? What if his call that had this degree of cost behind it is actually the fundamental reason why you might lean in and say, maybe there's something behind his call. Maybe there's something more truthful than I would uh, first give credit to Jesus for. I think it's idealistic, sure, but what if his call to lay down your life is actually fundamentally uh, more in line with the reality of who he is and this concept of discipleship, then you say, oh, how naive. How could somebody give you everything? See, intuitively, I think that we all recognize that if Jesus is, in fact, a creator, if he's a king, if he's a redeemer, that he just can't ask for part of you. He's got to ask for all of you. I don't know if you would have the same amount of respect for a king who says, I'll just take part of your allegiance. In fact, I'll just take the external stuff. I don't really need your heart. I don't really need your affections. I don't really want all of your life. I just need some outward obedience. That's what I'm after. See, we don't respect that in full. But a king who says, I'm in charge, I'm in control, I want all of you, we intuitively, even if you're not ready to follow, you at least think to yourself, they're being consistent. Maybe this king is worth the power that he's asking or the power that he's showing. According to Jesus, the essence or the nature of discipleship has got these three essential ingredients there in verse 23. They are taking up your cross. They are this rhythm of an everydayness, a consistency of taking it up every day, and then thirdly, following me. And of course, the first is a shocker. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross every single day and follow me. And, and listen, I wish Jesus had said something like, if you want to follow me, you just got to pick up your Bible every single day, and read it. 
Or if you want to be a follower, then you just need to have regular church attendance. Go every day. Or be a good moral human being. Love your neighbor every day and follow me. But he doesn't say any of that. What he says is, give up your life every day. Put yourself to death. And I think that sort of message cuts directly against the grain of modern culture and Western individualism, which preaches this message of personal satisfaction and happiness and autonomy and freedom. At every turn and on nearly every billboard and advertisement, we are told to go take up our life. Go make yourself happy. Find any and every comfort that you can get your hands on. Do not lay down your life. Take up your life. It is yours to take. We are told to go seek out happiness and reject anything that erodes our self-confidence. And Jesus has the audacity to ask us to lay aside our personal preferences, our self-confident ambitions, and the right to whatever makes me happy in favor of taking up a cross. How unrealistic. But consider this. I think it would be wise for us to recognize that every single call to follow is both a call to live and a call to die. Let me use a couple of examples. Every single call to follow is at the exact same time both a call to follow or to live and to die. If you're a sports fan and you were potential, let's use the LA Lakers for a moment. Anybody got any LA Lakers fans in the room? I know it's been an embarrassing season. You're embarrassed to raise your hands too. John's the only one. You're all alone, John. <laughs> LA, all right, there's that one over here, late, late hand. Um, <clears throat> if you are a fan of the Los Angeles Lakers, immediately when you give them your allegiance, you begin to follow them, you die to other teams. You immediately hate the Boston Celtics. It's just the way it works, right? As you give your heart away, your heart also closes immediately to something else. Isn't that the way it works? I come to life in one, but I also close the potential for something else immediately. That's just how it works. If you think about college students as they wrestle to define their major, the reason, at least in part, it can be so difficult to determine what do I want to give my life to, what do I want to put my hands to, what do I want to work towards my whole life is because you realize the moment that you choose, you come to life to that subject or that industry, but at the exact same time, you close almost every other door. So, so for you to step into that major and for you to love it and to give your heart to it, you've also got to close the door on something else, and that's difficult because you realize there's life and death involved. If you want to be an elite athlete, you literally can't have your cake and eat it too. It just doesn't work like that. But for you to put your heart, mind, body, soul into a pursuit, you have to say no to other things. And take marriage as an example. The moment that I said I do to my wife, and we took our vows almost 14 years ago this summer, I said no to relationships of a certain kind with every other woman in the entire world full freedom to step into this beautiful relationship with my wife, but also a closing of every other single door. And this is just the way that this sort of thing works. If you're going to follow, it's not idealistic. It's not naive for Jesus to say, give me all. Because he says, really, it's an either or. 
And yes, I do believe that there are people in this room who are probably in transition between one way of thinking and this new thing called Christianity. Jesus says, you are either going to live for yourself or you're going to live for me. Which one's it going to be? And some of you are in between. But he says, this is the way Christianity works. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he challenges us for the rule and authority of our lives. And the call is to a daily dying. This is the hard part. I woke up this morning thinking mostly about myself, thinking about what I wanted, thinking about my preferences. I wasn't thinking about him. And I realized that in the moment. The Holy Spirit comes in and he shows us, you're all about yourself. And so for me to get out of the way and to be able to pursue him, there has to be a daily dying. And guess what? There are many famous writers who said this is the most difficult part of Christianity because who wants to put to death a part of their own heart? I naturally do not want to do that. I would much rather live to myself, but the Spirit of God comes in and says, that's not real living. Real living is when you put yourself aside and begin to pursue me. It is a daily dying to myself. But then, I love this part. Not only does he say, take up your cross daily, but he says, follow me. And if he says, follow me, friends, the next question should be, where are you going? Where are you going? But we don't know. And that's actually the point. He doesn't tell us, does he? He doesn't provide a map for them. He doesn't tell us which direction. He tells us nothing about the roadblocks or the barriers. He simply says, follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes, if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us to follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. And to the world, this looks like lunacy. I mean, it looks like complete insecurity. In fact, Jesus reinforces this thought in that second chunk of verses where he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It seems like complete insecurity. Okay, Jesus, I'll follow you, but where are you going? And he doesn't tell you. I look back at my Christian history. I look back at the path that God has led me and my family on, and we love to say, how in the world did we get to San Diego? We grew up on the East Coast in a small mountain town. Everybody looked the same, thought the same, ate the same. We come to Boston, and then God leads us there for 11 years, and then he takes us to Kentucky, and then he takes us through North Carolina to the West Coast. Our, our, uh, our path of following Jesus has been completely unexpected, but it's so fun to say, isn't it amazing to see how God has led us? We had no idea where we were going. We just knew that we were with him, complete insecurity from one angle. But what you begin to see from the inside is that it's not complete insecurity and that to latch yourself to the things that can't save you starts to become lunacy. And to follow Jesus becomes the bedrock. Even if you don't know exactly where he's going, it doesn't matter. You just follow him. The nature of following, that's the bulk of the sermon, and the next two parts are a little bit shorter. Secondly, the priority of the kingdom. Look at verse 57 with me. We'll jump back into this chunk of text. 
Verse 57 says, as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another, Jesus said, follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to break down briefly each of those three conversations that Jesus has with those three men. Matthew's version of this same story, he tells us that this first man who has a conversation with Jesus is a scribe. He is an Old Testament scholar. He is a Bible teacher. He's a teacher of the law. And this man comes to Jesus, and he initiates the conversation. Did you notice that? He's the one who makes the offer of discipleship. He makes the offer to follow Jesus, thinking that Jesus would possibly jump at this unique opportunity to have a man of high society on his team. Because he's the elite of the elite in Jewish society. He's an Old Testament scholar. So he kind of hears that Jesus is recruiting. He walks up to Jesus, and he goes, Hey, let me make you an offer, Jesus. I'll follow you. Thinking that Jesus is going to jump all over that. Finally, somebody who's not a fisherman, right? Somebody who's well-educated. Somebody who can think with me. Finally, I'm going to get a guy on my team. And look at verse 59. The second person is approached by Jesus this time. Jesus says to this man, follow me. But this man asks to go and bury his father before he accepts the invitation. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then verse 61, the third person approaches Jesus again, this time with his own offer. And this time he essentially says to Jesus, I'm going to come follow you. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to come follow you, but I need to run home. Got some errands to run. Got some things to tidy up at the house. Need to give a few hugs. I'm coming, right? I'm coming, but I've got some things to do first. So this first man, he's a Jewish teacher offering to follow Jesus. The second man needs to bury his father, which is one of the most sacred and significant tasks of any son in Jewish society. And then the third man just wants to go home and say some goodbyes to his family. But in each of these conversations, Jesus rebukes them. Because in every conversation, something other than Jesus and his kingdom came first. It's a little cryptic, and you may catch it a little bit more clearly in Matthew chapter 8. But this first man, this scribe, he offers Jesus his prestige, his pedigree. He essentially says, I'm not like the others. I've got something to offer you. I'd like to come and follow you, right? I'm not like the others. I am religious. I am self-righteous. And Jesus essentially gives this man a warning. He says, you don't know what you're asking. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with self-righteousness. And then the second two men appear. They appear to have good intentions, but they have misplaced priorities. Look again at verses 59 and 61. Keep your eyes there. To another he said, follow me, verse 59. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. I'm coming, Jesus, but first I've got to honor all of our local traditions. The second man says, I'm coming, Jesus, but I got to go wrap up a few things. 
I've got to go say some goodbyes. And Jesus' response to all three of these men shows us that everything in our lives must find its meaning, its place, and its significance in relationship to him. If you reverse that order, everything breaks. That's what he's saying. I mean, this is the weight of this invitation in this text. Everything in our lives must find its meaning, place, and significance in relationship to him. Reverse that, change that, tweak that, and everything begins to break. He is saying that in comparison to our love for him, even our love for our dearest members of our family ought to feel like a distant second. Jesus has to become our priority. And he's not a pouty little child who's wanting to be picked first. Pick me first, pick me first. That's not at all. He is the creator of your soul who knows that if you don't pick him first, you put something else at the center, it will demean you, it will demand from you, and then it will crush you. So he's, what he's really saying is, pick me first. I am the source of life. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is this, where he writes, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Isn't that brilliant? Let me read it again. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. How many of you wake up in the morning, you look into the sky, and you stare at the sun? (laughs) Nobody does that. But by it, and because of it, you see everything. And to be a human means that you are going to choose something to put it in the center of your life by which you are going to see everything. And it will color all of your day, every part of who you are. You choose money. You put it at the center of your life. The sun which is going to shine upon you in every part of your day, what's it going to do? What shades and shadows is it going to cast on your life? What is it going to feel like to put financial freedom and security at the center of everything? It's your great ambition. It's what you wake up looking at. What does it do to your heart? What does it do to your life? If you put romantic love at the center of your life, it becomes the sun by which you see everything. What does it do to your life, to your perspective? What does it do to your choices, to the way in which you speak, to the way in which you couch your insecurities, to the sees because romantic love is at the center of everything. What does it turn you into? And Jesus is saying that none of this makes sense. Anything you care about, love, money, power, ambition, your career, anything that you care about in our city, homelessness, trafficking, family, parenting, all of it has to be seen through the filter of Jesus. He becomes the clue which makes sense of everything else. He's saying that everything has to be second. He's got to be first, and he gives us the invitation, come and follow. Let me take you to this last part, the priority of the kingdom, and then thirdly, the agenda of the king. What's Jesus after? Why does he demand priority and require that we follow? A couple things, and we'll wrap up. Number one, what's Jesus after? Firstly, I'd say he wants to extinguish the secret rebellions within our hearts. That's what he's after. 
He wants to extinguish the secret rebellions within our hearts. Remember when Jesus tells that second man, leave the dead to bury their own dead, when all he wanted to do was go home and bury his, his own father? The people who heard it would have been either confused or outraged. And this request would have been so common, so routine, so normal, so everyday, and that's Jesus' point. What do I mean? Jesus' point is that what he's showing us is that the common, everyday, absolutely normal routines and practices and people in our lives can steal our hearts and we won't even know it. That's his point. And Jesus knows that when an ordinary thing becomes ultimate, things, when they become ultimate things, they steal our hearts. Secondly, in helping us to see what's at stake in the quiet or maybe not so quiet rebellions of our hearts, Jesus has come to restore our first loves. That's his agenda. He's come to restore our first loves. See, when Jesus comes, you have to notice that he never asks anything of us that he hasn't already asked of himself. So when he says, come and lay down your life for me, you have to recognize that in this story, he has already what? Laid down his life for you. And he's come to heal you, he's come to restore you, he's come to forgive you, he's come to redeem you, he's come to give you a, a vision for life, he's come to be the son by which you see all things. He, has, he is asking you to make him his, your number one priority, yes, but you only do so because you know deeply within your heart that you are already his number one priority. I mean, when the invitation comes and you know that this God loves you like that, changes everything. And thirdly, because we're loved by this king, we begin to love his kingdom. Where we were once consumed with our own ambitions, now we actually start to have ambition for Jesus. We want to see the gospel advance. We want to see lives change. And then lastly, he wants you to drop all the conditions. Because a condition means that that thing that you say, if you give me this, then I'll follow, is more important than he is. And he wants you to see that. He wants you to feel that. He wants you to come. He wants you to, as I've said before a couple of weeks ago, he wants you to study. He wants you to have a well-reasoned faith, but he wants you to drop the conditions. Because in following Jesus, that's where life is. Right? This is what it means for us to be a new church and a new community, trying to reach what I'm seeing out there right behind you, this community in greater San Diego. Every time the church has compromised on Luke chapter 9, we've lost. But every time we listen carefully and we begin to embrace this call together to lay down our lives, and believe me, you cannot do it on your own. It's going to take a community. But every time we follow, it changes the world. And even if we don't get to change the world, it'll change your life. Over the next three weeks, even within this conversation, with conversations with Jesus, we're going to do three weeks with conversations that are uniquely related to following him and discipleship. So this is week one. We'll have two or three more. So come back next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the call to follow you. I don't know if we caught it but it's a call, it's not a demand. Even though you're the God who could control and manipulate and rearrange everything, you acknowledge our freedoms, 
You invite us into a real relationship. You gave warnings to people who said flippantly, I'm coming. You said, do you really know what you're signing up for? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What kind of God is this? But what we see in the center of the gospel is that you are a God who has made us your priority. And I don't know why that's the case. Why would you love us that way? Does the scriptures say that you simply do, so much so that you sent Jesus to redeem us, to heal us, to forgive us, so that we might follow him and find life. Many of us in this room may be pursuing the things of this world, but losing ourselves. And Jesus says, what profit is that to anyone if you gain it all but lose yourself? So, oh, Holy Spirit, work on us, change us, redeem us. I cannot put myself to death tomorrow. I will not want to unless your spirit comes in to whisper, he's safe, he's good. Go to him again, follow again. Help us to be a church like that. We are amplifying what you are about in our city and helping people mature as followers of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.